on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, friends, family, and others. Well, I guess everyone here is another, in a sense, because I haven't told my friends and family that I do a podcast for fear that, uh, well, they would think I'm weird. And, you know, they might not be wrong. While uh, I have your attention, I just want to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake on the last uh, podcast, on the first episode of The Big Data Uh I repeated and deleted some sentences uh, there for about uh, about 15 seconds of the podcast. It was kind of, there was a bit of a snafu there. So uh, uh, anyway, I went back and re-edited it, but sorry about that for those people listening in and, you know, were thrown off for about 15 seconds or, well, maybe you're, all, maybe you're always thrown off with me. Anyway. Thank you for your patience. Sorry about that. I will be more careful when I edit uh, and finalize the podcasts uh, next time and in future times. Sorry. Okay, now let's get on to the game. I made a mistake in the previous episode, but I make no mistake in playing this game. What we're going to do here, I will say a quote from a philosopher, perhaps well-known, perhaps obscure, and I will give you, the loyal audience, f- five seconds to name that philosopher, okay? That's what we're going to do. Okay, here it goes. Only one man ever understood me, and he didn't understand me. Oh, let me say that again. Only one man ever understood me, and he didn't understand me. Oh, who could have said that? Okay, I'm going to count this down. Five, four, three, two, one. Well, it's the man with the big heart, straight from Stuttgart. Stuttgart, Germany, that is. George Frederick Wilhelm Hegel. Hegel, that man Hegel, he was notoriously obscure in his writings, using using often difficult, tortured prose, but, you know, at least he was uh, self-aware, or so at least it appears from this quote here, he knows he was uh, not the easiest guy to understand. Unless he was saying uh, no one understood him because he was too brilliant to be understood by others. And that's a bit different story. Then he doesn't, that doesn't make him sound very nice at all. Not sure on, uh, well, on this one. It's a bit of a coin toss. Uh, But, you know, I'm a nice guy. So let's give him the most charitable possible interpretation here and say that he was being humble. I don't know if Hegel is uh, usually associated with modesty, but let's give him that. Okay, on to the main of the episode. Hello, 
everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Sorry, uh, you have to hear me breathe so loudly into the microphone. It's, uh, I gotta get a better microphone. Some better technology, which brings me to today's episode. Well, actually, first today, I'm going to describe the scene out my window. It's a very nice late spring day here. Uh, the air's a little cool outside, but the sun is shining. I've been inside for a long time. Uh, I really should be outside, I guess, but I want to finish this off. I've been wanting to do it for a while. Uh, i got to finish off this recording while the kids are at uh, nursery school, because otherwise they will be making noise and kicking my shins, which is no problem, I guess. Anyway... Last time, we talked about big data or data, and we will continue talking about it, and we will get into the work of Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger. Thank you for listening. Now, last week, we talked about big data, and big data... It's done incredible things for social policy. Uh, For example, uh, managing traffic flow. Uh, It's done wonderful things for traffic flow management in cities, although you may not believe that if you are stuck in traffic. Um, And weather prediction. Uh, The weatherman has gotten better over the years. Let's give him that. But... In the area of policy where sociology reigns, it has been less successful. Uh, According to uh, the MIT Technology Review, big data and AI could not predict how a given legislative policy will affect the life outcomes of children, even with massive amounts of data. This is a study that is coming out In the last month, it now being May 2020, and this was very, very surprising and disappointing for those fans of big data. According to the journalist Karen Howe, hundreds of researchers attempted to predict children's and families' outcomes using 15 years of data. None were able to do so with meaningful accuracy. The promise of big data and AI to policymakers was that if you fed enough data into these algorithms, then you could start to see a greater predictive capacity in which types of policy and legislation would lead to better or worse outcomes for people. The hope, the dream, was that more data meant more accurate predictions than the more traditional human-reliant statistical analysis. Quoting Karen Howe again, Now, a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences casts doubt on how effective this approach really is the big data approach. Three sociologists at Princeton University asked hundreds of researchers to predict six life outcomes for children, parents, and households using 
nearly 13,000, 13,000 data points on over 4,000, 4,000 families. None of the researchers got even close to a reasonable level of accuracy, regardless of whether they used simple statistics or cutting-edge machine learning. This should perhaps give pause to technocrats and positivists who believe big data can replace the theoretical muckiness and murkiness of the social sciences. They should welcome a bit more of the qualitative of the humanities rather than the quantitative of the sciences. And this is good news for the humanities because they have been on the retreat since the, well, since the Enlightenment. So they're getting, gaining a little more ground. Human life is muddy, qualitative, and unclear itself, and our academic disciplines need to reflect and embrace this rather than dismissing qualitative elements and resulting in predictability that qualitative elements produce uh, as mere noise in a signal-to-noise ratio. just dismiss what the qualitative information is giving us. It's not just noise. It may be the most important thing. Perhaps we should go and look at Martin Heidegger, who believed that quantifiable data that is the bedrock of the sciences do not represent reality in its most primary form. When we study physics or chemistry, for example, we often think that the data they produce represents our most primary realm of reality, according to this materialist view of science. But Heidegger built his theories primarily with ontologies. Ontology is a study of the things that are. It is a study of the things that exist in the world. Uh, of all the objects. For Heidegger, reality was at its most primary level in our lived world, the world of lived experience. It is the world that we experience in our everyday life, our humdrum life, our exciting lives, all those lives. The practice of Science is a worthwhile pursuit, I'm sure Heidegger would say. Of course, um, that gives us a great range of predictive technological capacity. But it is something we can only experience as people embedded within our framework of human practice. Um, the human practice of everyday life is the deepest level of reality there is. There's nothing deeper for humans. Being in the world, that Heidegger phrase, being in the world as humans, is the deepest. What is science if it is not the primary level of reality? For Heidegger, it is an abstraction. It is a secondary representation of the messy world as it is in terms of controllable, quantifiable data points. Science needs the world to be a set of data points so that it may study it. 
It abstracts the mess of reality into these finer data points. Remember, gravity, force, mass, and any other aspect of physics existed before there was a human practice of science to study it and scientific concepts to explain and shove these things inside. This works well for the world of physical phenomena. We can shove these things inside quantifiable data. We know because our predictions based on physics are highly successful. But humans are qualitative creatures through and through. Our lived experience and how we understand and grade our lives is through qualitative criteria. We just do not import calories into our bodies, for example, when we eat, but we gorge on delicious red apples, rich, delectable, indulgent chocolate cakes, bitter but refreshing beer with notes of citrus hops. We live in the qualitative world. Understanding food consumption as caloric intake is not describing the reality of the situation. It is abstracting from the reality in order to make it fit into a quantitative framework. And that's it's okay. Sometimes, perhaps, there are benefits to doing this in nutritional science, of course. But social policy is about motivating, encouraging, discouraging, appealing, creating value, and myriad other things that people conceptualize only in qualitative terms. And sometimes conceptualization is not the capacity that we can apply to these qualitative experiences. Uh, we can't even conceptualize about them. We can't even adequately talk about them. These things are ineffable and inscrutable. They're like poetry. Describe the game of soccer or a particular song to someone who has never experienced either, and there will be a lot left to be desired in your explanation. I think this was originally a Wittgensteinian idea. Uh, our words will always leave something to be desired. Elements that are central to human life cannot be adequately evaluated by appraisals because they escape the grasp of cognition. Not every important part of human experience can be put in propositional form. Now, please do not understand this to be anti-science in any way. It calls for a certain modesty, however, in approach of any way of understanding the world. The best case scenario is for big data to solve all of our problems, of course. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm rooting for it, but I guess the hopeful takeaway is to curb your enthusiasm. The next time that you see a TED Talk or a Silicon Valley guru in a t-shirt selling an idea based on the promise of big data or AI, that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Please take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, a little bit of healthy skepticism. Don't give them too much power. After all, they are the people who created Facebook. Well, thank you very much for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Mm -hmm.